Praise the Lord. Well, can you believe we've been on this series, Greater Grace, Learning to Walk in God's Divine Grace and Favor, for this is the 11th week, and we've been talking about, of course, as you know, pride and humility in this series. And we've covered a lot of ground, and um, I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. I do see that we're nearing the end of this series after almost three months. So, uh, um, again, we're maybe not going to go six months on this like I thought we might, but you never know because I've experienced in the past where I've told the congregation, I think next week going to be the last teaching in this series. I've done that before, and then all of a sudden there's three or four more teachings that come out of it. So I've learned not to predict the ending until it's actually here. But I, I do feel like we're nearing an end of this series. So at any rate, go ahead and turn to our master text in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and we're going to read verses 23 through 28. And when you find that, go ahead and stand up with me. And let's honor the word of God as it's being read. Now, this master text, by the way, boy... <laughs> This is Jesus confronting the Pharisees, and he does not pull any punches whatsoever. Uh, This is a little bit of a forceful little section of Scripture here as Jesus kind of tears in to the Pharisees. But he does it out of love, folks. I want you to understand that. Jesus never did anything out of of hate. Uh, He was always trying to rattle people's cages that were spiritually cold and dry and dead in order to get them to wake up spiritually. So listen to what he says, verse 23. Woe to you! teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. (laughs) Praise God. All right. Now, boy, that was a rough way to start out a teaching, wasn't it? But we are going someplace with this that I believe is going to be a blessing to you. So let me remind you, and I know that most of you in the room know this, but let me remind you that the the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious elite of that culture. They were highly trained in the Old Testament scriptures, but for many of them, and not all, but for many of them, that religious education served only to puff them up with elitism and pride. It seemed like that there was only a small percentage of those Pharisees and scribes who allowed the Word of God to prick their hearts and bring them to a place of uh, humble estimation of themselves. And uh, Jesus, by the way, as you saw there with that master text, Jesus was very hard on those who got puffed up with religious pride. 
See, he was saying that, yes, you should have observed these practices and ceremonies that you love to observe. You should do those things because Father God prescribes them. But if you don't combine them with love for others, mercy toward your fellow man, and justice, what good is it really? It's just dead, dry ceremony. That's what he was saying. You see, it's possible to observe ceremony, folks, and look good on the outside, but on the inside be completely unchanged. Did you know that? And man, that truth right there, by the way, should make us examine our hearts regularly. If it's true that we can look good on the outside like the Pharisees, but on the inside be full of hypocrisy and wickedness and and deadness and coldness. We ought to be examining ourselves regularly. See, this is why the Apostle Paul, by the way, wrote to the Corinthian church and said, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves, he said. So I want us to do just that this morning. I want us to examine ourselves this morning and see if our relationship with the Lord is producing growth. You know, more love toward God, more love toward one another, um, less pride and arrogance, of course, and also more humility. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a most insidious form of pride, and that is religious pride, which might be the worst pride of all in some respects. Religious pride, because oftentimes, folks, pride tries to hide behind the Bible. Pride tries to hide sometimes behind the Bible. See, an unfortunate human tendency that's born out of pride is that we oftentimes want to cherry pick the Bible to fit one's own theology and lifestyle and then refuse to allow that paradigm to be challenged without some sort of reaction. And I want to give you an example of that right now from the scriptures. Um, This is out of Luke chapter 10, so let's just read this together. One day, an expert in the law stood up to test him, being Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, that seems like a very legitimate and wonderful question, but he was asking the question to test Jesus, as verse 25 says. Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he then goes on to tell him the parable of the Good Samaritan, which really cut to the core of this man's religious pride and his bigotry towards some of the people that he didn't like. All right? Now, this man attempting to justify himself, using the Bible to do it, (laughs) um, I've seen, I've had the opportunity to see that sort of thing in action more times than I can count, folks. See, it's not uncommon for a person to feel conviction about something that they're doing or not doing and then go to great lengths to try to justify that thing and using the Bible to attempt to do it. See, I remember many conversations that I've had even with extended family members and we've had discussions about things of importance within our family, 
and I'm, I was trying to bring a biblical perspective into some of those conversations, and people responded like this more times than a few. Well, I don't know the Bible quite like you, Andy, but I just think that... Folks, I want to respect people's opinion and all, but when it comes to biblical truths, our opinions have no weight whatsoever. I've also had other people want to defend other sacred cows of theirs that they've held dear. But, you know, when you engage them in conversation, it's really shocking the lack of biblical support they have for some of these positions. But even when you show them that, you can't get some people to change their minds because this is their own personal sacred cow. Sadly, some people will wrench Bible passages completely out of context and do scriptural gymnastics with them to try to protect their position and ease their consciences. Have you ever experienced that? And in doing so, they expend a great amount of time and energy using the Bible to attempt to discredit the position of whoever that God is using to try to bring guidance into their lives. And folks, that is a sad way to use the Bible. That's a very sad way to use the Bible. See, there are some people who have approached me who I know in advance are fond of debating and arguing, which is not a good trait, by the way. And so, because I know that about them in advance, I say, okay, well, look, I'll have this conversation with you on one condition, that you come with a well-studied biblical defense of your position. And a lot of times, that weeds a lot of people out. (laughs) That weeds a lot of people out because they won't do it, yet they still get offended at you when you don't come over to their way of thinking. And folks, that is just nothing but unabashed religious pride. That's what that is. So people of God, don't let the truth offend you. Let it change you. Hallelujah. You know, reading the Bible and attending church, etc., should lead to less pride, folks, not more. (laughs) But for many people, unfortunately, it does lead to more pride uh, because... A lot of times people forget where they came from. They forget that they too were once an object of God's wrath, redeemed by the blood of Christ through faith and not any merits of their own. A lot of times people forget that. People forget where they came from before they came to Christ. Well, you see, a truly humble person is open to learning like a little child. I say that again, a truly humble person is open to learning like a little child and is open to having their paradigm challenged if necessary. A humble person knows that he or she doesn't know everything. See, maybe there's something in the pages of the Bible that you still don't know much about yet or that might challenge what you think you already know. And maybe there's someone who might know more than you do. Okay, is that possible? (laughs) Well, let's look what Jesus says about this. In Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How does a little child humble himself? 
they're just so eager to learn. A little child is just so receptive to what you tell them. They're eager to learn and to know. Have you ever been in driving down the, the road in your car and your, your child is looking out the window and asking you question after question after question after question after question? And, you're, and finally you're like, can you please just zip it for a while? Because they're curious, they want to know, okay? They're, they've humbled themselves and are so desirous of knowledge. And that's how we need to be. And you know, the, the opposite of this childlike approach to our faith, by the way, which is, again, religious pride, is what we're talking about this morning. That religious pride is why the Pharisees wouldn't accept Jesus as their Messiah because they were so steeped in their religious tradition that they couldn't see their Messiah that they'd been waiting on for those many generations. They couldn't see their Messiah when he was standing right there in front of them in the flesh. Mm. Folks, listen. We need to be keenly aware of when pride tries to hide. Because if we're not aware of the areas where pride tries to sneak in, then like those Pharisees, we might miss so much of what God wants to reveal to us. See, yes, the Pharisees had head knowledge, but because of their pride, they lacked revelation knowledge. I want to say that again. The Pharisees had head knowledge, but because of their pride, they lacked revelation knowledge. And see, listen, if we aren't careful and watchful, folks, then like those Pharisees, we too can gain head knowledge, but yet be completely lacking in revelation knowledge. Again, I want to say that again. If we're not watchful, like those Pharisees, we can gain head knowledge, but be completely lacking in revelation knowledge. In other words, we won't be able to see the forest for the trees. Like the, the Bible says of the ancient Israelites, we'll have ears but not be able to hear. We'll have eyes but not be able to see. Okay, it, it's entirely possible, listen, it's entirely possible to know the Bible, but in our pride, completely miss the heart of God. And thus miss out on the greater grace that He wants to lavish on you and me. See, teachings like this, even though sometimes it's challenging for us, in God's heart and mind, it's always to get you to a place and in a position where he can bless you more. And God opposes the proud. So that's not what he wants you to live. But he gives grace to the humble, praise God. Now listen, sadly, some of the most prideful people that I've ever met are people who claim to know God and do indeed know some of the Bible. They know some of the Bible, but they're full of bitterness toward people. They know some of the Bible, but they're gossips. They claim to know God, but they know not His love. And the humility of Christ is lost on them. So remember, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, look at the screen. Be careful that our religious tradition doesn't lead to an elitist mentality because that leads ultimately to spiritual blindness. 
If you're walking in pride, you're walking, at least to some degree, in spiritual blindness. I'm telling you, folks, religious tradition can be a killer in some respects. And, and don't make the mistake of believing that just because you're not in a liturgical church that we don't have some religious tradition here in our circles. We do. We do. And religious tradition can be a killer in some respects. It can literally lead to glaring areas of sin and hard-heartedness that go undetected. Or, or maybe, consider this, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe because of our hard-heartedness. Our hard-heartedness leads to our religious tradition becoming fruitless so that they become stumbling blocks rather than blessings. That's what was happening with the Pharisees. Because of their hard-heartedness, their religious tradition became stumbling blocks rather than blessings. I want to give you a really, really sad example of that from the Scriptures. This is out of Matthew 27, and it uh, regards Judas when you know, Judas betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, then he had remorse, and he went to the Pharisees and wanted to return the money because of his remorse. And I want you to, I want you to notice this conversation and what the Pharisees said to him and how they responded. So Matthew 27, verses 3 through 7, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was filled with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What is that to us? They replied. You bear the responsibility. So Judas threw the silver into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the pieces of silver and said, it is unlawful to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. After conferring together, they used the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. <laughs> Do you see the spiritual blindness here? I mean, on one hand, they, they pay someone to sell out Jesus so they can have him crucified. They were murderers, but yet they're so concerned about these little matters of the law where, oh, we can't use this money now to put back in the temple because it's blood money. Yeah, you're blood money, you murderer. Uh, why are you so concerned about other aspects of the law when you're not, even, you're not even paying attention to the greater matters? Isn't that just amazing how we can be blinded by our spiritual, uh, spiritually blinded by our religious tradition? That's what was happening here. Folks, listen. <laughs> there are horrible things that have been done throughout history in the name of religion. Because in their pride, people get hung up on the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. Now listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey God's word. Of course not. But by doing so, we have to let the word prick our own hearts. See, if we aren't careful, our religious tradition can lead to an elitist mentality toward our brethren in Christ, but also toward those who are unredeemed, who are not yet in the faith. And I'm so glad that God didn't treat me like that. <laughs> you know, the Bible says that, 
that he loved you and me even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Praise God. But religious pride will cause us to forget that and place judgment upon those who are not yet where we are. See, I'm not condoning sin. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the love of God needs to be growing in our, our hearts toward the unredeemed. Wouldn't you agree? So let me ask you a question. Do we grieve about those who are outside the faith? Or is our attitude more like, get them, God? If it's the latter, we need to probably check our hearts and some things. Now, let me provide some perspective here on pride, because I think that our church culture really doesn't understand the stark evil of this particular sin. I mean, after all, we say of our kids, well, I'm so proud of my kids, as if pride is a good thing. Well, why not change the expression to, I'm so pleased with my kids, right? See, we need to come to terms with the fact folks, we need to come to terms with the fact that pride is the nature of Satan himself. And I'm about to show you a passage out of Isaiah 14 that clearly shows that. Um, But before I do, I just want to say that the prophetic books in the Old Testament, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, etc., the men who penned these books were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they found themselves describing two things at once without even really recognizing they were doing so, maybe. For example, in Psalm 22, David was writing about the nature of his own personal troubles and the severity of his own personal persecution. And right there in the middle of that writing, he goes off on a tangent and ends up perfectly describing the crucifixion of Jesus that would happen a thousand years later. And he may not have even have realized at the time that he was doing that. And some, something similar is happening is something similar is happening in Isaiah 14 that we're about to read here in a second. See, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying in this passage about the prideful king of Babylon and what's about to happen to him. And it happened exactly like he prophesied, by the way. But right in the middle of that diatribe, there's a strange section that many Bible theologians consider to be a description of Lucifer and his fall from heaven. So let's read that together really quickly. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the ground, O destroyer of nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The point that I want to make about reading that passage is that the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden was not the first sin ever committed. The first sin ever committed was the sin of Lucifer. And the sin of Lucifer was pride. That's why pride is often called original sin. Pride is the very essence of Satan himself, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why God hates pride. I want you to see that point right there from Scripture as well. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, I hate pride and arrogance. 
And also in uh, Proverbs chapter 16, um, it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And the first thing that mentions is haughty eyes, haughty eyes. Now, haughty means arrogantly superior and disdainful. You're looking, out, looking at people down through your nose, down uh, that, that expression. You look, look at people like, like this, you know, down your nose at people, that haughty, prideful expression. So it means arrogantly superior and disdainful. And also, I want you to notice that the company that haughtiness or pride keeps, as we keep reading there in, uh, in Proverbs, it says this out of Proverbs chapter 6. Um, let me just back up to verse 16 there and start again. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that run swiftly to evil, a false witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up discord among the brothers. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. So that is the company that God associates pride with. God hates pride, and we too need to take a similar attitude. I want you to notice also that the Bible tells us that God destroyed the ancient city of Sodom, not just because of sexual perversion, but also because of pride. And not a lot of people realize that, I guess. I think most of us, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we think that God destroyed them because of all of their detestable sexual perversion. But that's only part of the picture God also destroyed them because of their pride and their unconcern for those less fortunate. So let's see what the Bible says about that. Reading out of the prophetic book, Ezekiel, verses 16, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Let's read. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. God hates pride. And pride leads to detestable things. Now, on that note, I want to teach you a phrase that many of you probably already know, but some of you younger ones might not know, and it's not a Bible verse, but it does reflect a Bible truth. And that's something that was said by John Bradford, there but for the grace of God go I. Now, John Bradford was an English pastor in the 1500s, and a a, a modern rendering of of this phrase is, but for the grace of God, there go I. It means that if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be exactly like that person that my pride tends to look down upon. See, that person that we we tend to judge, let's take the drug addict, for example. You know, listen, if you were raised in the same family as that drug addict, if uh, you had the same disposition and the same wiring, if you will, as that drug addict, if you had the same experiences as that drug addict did, you would be exactly like that person. But you were raised very different than that. You have a different 
disposition than that person. You don't have some of the same temptations and weaknesses as that person does. So, but for the grace of God, there go I. I want to give you another example. You know, you've heard me talk about that the frontal lobe of the brain is not fully developed, neuroscience tells us, until about 25 years of age, give or take. Well, the frontal lobe of the brain is the region that's responsible for reasoning and critical thinking. So that's why we have teenagers and people in their 20s running around thinking they know everything. But they don't yet recognize um, you know, the flaws in their thinking. Again, but for the grace of God, there go I. Now, that's not to imply that there's not teenagers and people in their 20s who are not brilliant. And that's also not meant to imply that there's not teenagers and uh, people in their 20s who are not very humble people before the Lord. As a matter of fact, we have some of them in this congregation. Praise God. And that's also not to imply, by the way, that uh, older people have it all together because, man, I know some older people who are shockingly ignorant and shockingly smug at the same time. And folks, I think ignorance and pride go hand in hand, don't you? See, if there's one thing that higher learning ought to do for us folks, it's helping us to recognize that there's a universe out there that we know nothing about yet. If there's anything that higher learning ought to do for you, the more you learn, the more you ought to realize there's a lot that you still don't know. So higher learning ought to bring us to a place of humility if our hearts are right. Praise God. Well, one thing that keeps me trying to maintain a sober judgment of myself is that I know that there's things that I might see incorrectly right now that God may have to correct me on later. I mean, that, that has happened before. That happened to any of you before? Is it just me? Uh, okay, great. Hallelujah. So, you know, we just need to recognize the fact, folks, that we all see as if looking through a darkened glass, says 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That means we all have partial knowledge and incomplete understanding this side of heaven. And the sooner that you and I can come to terms with that, the more humble we'll be. And in fact, this man right here, Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in England in the 1800s, is a man that I quote all the time in my teachings, and he's been called the Prince of Preachers and is one of the most quotable Christian pastors ever. Yet there are many people who consider Spurgeon to have had some areas of his theology that were problematic, that were quite off. (laughs) Uh, Even so, he loved the Lord. He was a powerful preacher. So if a man like Spurgeon can get a few things wrong, how much should you and I tremble at the thought of being puffed up with our own sense of doctrinal perfection? And I think that's a good way to stay humble and approach each conversation humbly, knowing that it's possible that we can get some things wrong. Now, I want to qualify something with that said. You know, there's many things that the Bible is unmistakably and, and absolutely clear on. For example, there's no way that an intellectually honest person could ever read the Bible and come away with any other conclusion other than that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's very clear. 
okay? And God made himself very clear on other things as well, such as the sanctity of life, his standards on sexuality, etc. But there's other peripheral things that might be up for debate. And oftentimes it's these peripheral things that tend to divide us and get us into religious pride. So, I want to give us a a modern day example of religious pride and do a little exercise here this morning. So, uh, I'm going to just illustrate how we can so easily get into religious pride and not even realize it sometimes. So, I want you to observe the pictures that I'm about to put up on the screen here in a moment. And without saying anything or making any sounds in response to what you're about to see, I just want you to pause quietly and pay attention to your inner reaction when you see each of these pictures of different types of worship services and different styles of worship. Okay, so you're ready? So very quietly, just pay attention to how you feel with each of these pictures. Okay, here's the first one. The first one is a a Catholic mass and two priests uh, giving communion there. The second one is all those folks there standing and worshiping with their hands raised, almost every one of them. Here's one in a much more traditional Protestant church where you see people in traditional pews uh, leaning over very quietly there in a moment of, of prayer apparently. Here's one with a Catholic priest laying flat on the ground in homage and reverence to the Lord. Here's one of a woman, actually several people, getting excited and dancing and moving about enthusiastically in a worship service. Here's another lady who is kneeling before the Lord in prayer and humility and and worship there. And lastly, uh, women's choir and women getting happy and clapping their hands as they, as they sing. So, how did you do? Did you make any judgments? Uh, did any of those pictures or images stir up any uh, reaction at all? Did it stir up any religious pride as if, <laughs> I would never do that, that's silly. Anything like that? You don't have to answer. I mean, seriously, I mean, you, you may have seen some of those pictures. I mean, they're still up on the screen to take a second look. You may see some of those images and say, I would never do that. So did any of that stir up any of those kinds of reactions? That's what I was trying to get at, to see if any of those images stirred up any religious pride in you at all. Now, I do want to say say this about styles and methodologies in worship, by the way. If we can find it in the Bible, folks, I am all for it. And I can give you a scriptural reference for every single one of those images that you see on the screen. None of those things that you, you see on the screen right now should be foreign to the Christian because every one of them is sanctioned in the Bible. Now... For me personally, I'm not really a dancer by nature, so you'll probably never see me get up here on the stage and, and dance a jig across the stage or anything, but, but you will see me bounce up and down on my heels kind of rhythmically and, and at least get moving a little bit. I can at least do that much. But if someone got happy, by the way, if someone got happy and decided to dance across this room, I would have absolutely no problem with that. You know Why? Because it's in the Bible. We see those things in the Bible. So if any of you have ever felt like just getting out in the aisle and busting a move, 
You have the permission of the pastor to do that. Just don't, just don't dance over somebody, okay? Hallelujah. And also, by the way, if uh, someone decided to humble themselves before the Lord and lay flat out on the ground, like that priest you see in that picture there, the Bible calls that prostrating oneself before the Lord. If someone decided to do that, we shouldn't be uncomfortable with that either because we see that thing in the Bible as well, okay? I remember one time Donna and I were at a, a, a conference in um, Branson, Missouri at Keith Moore's church. And I remember we were just worshiping and, you know, they've, they've got a really big church with a really big choir and a really big, you know, worship team. So the, the music is really good and, and the worship's really good. And I remember just enjoying the presence of the Lord and enjoying worshiping. And I remember as we were worshiping the Lord, there was this uh, a black gentleman, an older black gentleman that, that just got up out of his seat where we were all standing. But he just stepped out from his seat and got in the aisle and started dancing. And it wasn't anything crazy or anything, but he knew how to move. And uh, I was, I don't know, five or six rows behind him. And I noticed him. And it wasn't a distraction for me at all. As a matter of fact, I saw that. And I went, I like that. There's something right about that. He's, just, he's enjoying the presence of the Lord. And again, he wasn't being crazy or anything. He was, just, he was moving and just enjoying the music and the presence of the Lord. And I went, that blesses me. In fact, I thought to myself, I wish I could move like that. <laughs> if I could move like that, I'd probably be doing the same thing. All right? <clears throat> so, you know, if you, if you can see it in the Bible, folks, don't let your religious pride look at stuff like that and go, really? No, R- really what you ought to be doing is when you, when you feel that religious pride come up in you, you ought to kind of look in the mirror and do a gut check and go, Really? Why am I feeling like that? Why, why am I uncomfortable with that? I see it in the Bible. Why, why does that make me uncomfortable? Right? Now, I also want to state an opposite truth here as well, by the way, just to bring some balance to that. If it's not in the Bible, we ought to think long and hard about whether it belongs in a worship service at all. Okay? So I do, by the way, have some very strong feelings about uh, what some churches are doing because in some cases it's idolatry. And I'm going to give you an example of what I know that I've heard that one church uh, in our community is doing. I won't mention any names, but there's one church in our community that opens up their services with a secular song, like the Beatles or something. Just, I guess, they're, I don't know. I don't know why they do that. To me, that's just downright idolatry. Okay? That's not sanctioned in the Bible. Nothing like that. But aside from those types of things, you know, what I see a lot of churches doing these days is, is practicing biblical things, but they cherry-pick the Bible for things that we're most comfortable with. And man, if we could just all come together and just decide to do everything the Bible says, I think we'd be powerful, don't you? But as, he, as it is, we restrict what we do to what we're most comfortable with, and then congratulate ourselves for our enlightenment, supposed enlightenment, and smirk at other churches that don't do it exactly like we do. And folks, I'm sorry, that is religious pride, and it's not pleasing to God. 
God's just trying to bring us to a place where we recognize those things so that he can bless us more because he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's where he wants us to live. Being able to have more of his grace lavished upon us. And I want to give you an example of how we need to be regarding one another out of Romans 14 um, with some of these different convictions and different uh, ways that people honor God. Romans 14 addresses, uh, well, let's just go ahead and read it and then I'll elaborate. Verse 1 in Romans 14, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on on his opinions. For one person has faith to eat all things while another who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not belittle the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not, pass, must, must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted him. What's it getting at? In both scenarios, both people are trying to please God. Just one person is doing it out of lack of knowledge. There's more that they need to learn. And another person is doing it out of more complete knowledge. And the person that's doing it out of more complete knowledge does not need to be judging the person who's still growing in these things. Does that make sense? But look what it goes on to say in verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Meaning God's servant. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's both a very sober warning, but also a a wonderful promise to you and me. Regardless of where we are in our walk of faith right now, we're still, some of us are still very young in the Lord, still growing on a steep learning curve. Some of us, like me, have been walking with the Lord for 30 years. I still, I feel like I'm still on a steep learning curve. So we need to all be gracious to one another and uh, not pass judgment and just let people grow. Let people grow in their knowledge, praise God. So I want to summarize, and then we're going to read a couple of scriptures, and then we'll be done. So a short summary of this teaching that I want you to get out of it, if we were to distill it down into a couple of sound bites, would be this. Number one, be teachable. Continue to be teachable. Once somebody stops being teachable, mm, that's a bad place to be. That's a bad place to be. See, don't let your pride and your religious tradition get in the way of more revelation from God, because it will. If you let your pride continue to hide and and stay there undetected and unaddressed, it will lead to spiritual blindness, remember. Don't settle for religious ceremony only. In other words, don't just settle. In, in, In our type of style, we don't do a lot of liturgical types of ceremonies, but we still have ceremony. I mean, just coming to church on a Sunday morning is a type of ceremony. It's a religious practice. And so we can congratulate ourselves for that and say, oh, I checked the box. I went to church this morning. Don't settle for just that. Don't settle for religious ceremony only, but be open to deeper moves of God in your life that may be outside of what you've ever experienced or you might expect. Because I don't care how much you've grown in the Lord, you and I cannot put God in our own little intellectual and religious boxes. God won't live in your religious box. He will not. He refuses to be put in your intellectual and religious box. 
He's a God that lives way beyond your intellect and your little religious ideas. Praise the Lord. So be open to deeper moves of God in your life that may be outside of what you might have ever expected or experienced. Next summary point. Be careful about how we judge our brethren in Christ in other churches. Now, look, I also believe that we need to be discerning. If you see something in a church that's idolatry or that is clearly opposite of what the Bible says, like some churches ordaining homosexuals as pastors and priests, we need to judge that aright according to the Word of God. So you can look at other, and I will even put this word church in parentheses, and in quotation marks, rather. If you see a church that's doing that sort of thing, that's not even a church anymore. That's just a pagan club that gets together in the, in the name of a church. Okay? So we do need to be discerning along those lines. Okay? So just be a student of the Bible and do all you can to obey what you see there and then align yourself with a church that does the same. Praise the Lord. Now, I want to give you the conclusion of the matter with a couple of, uh, couple of passages here. The first one being out of Micah 6, 6 through 8. This is a mandate for all of us, for all of our lives. The prophet Micah, uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says this, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my youth, or the sin of my soul, rather? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires of you. And I'm going to leave us with this last passage, this last scripture verse today out of Proverbs 29, 23. And this is kind of the essence of our whole series. And it says this, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit obtains honor. A humble spirit obtains honor. Did you know, listen, God wants to honor you. He wants to honor you, but he won't honor you if you continue to try to honor yourself. Uh, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit obtains honor. And folks, as I said kind of at the outset of this teaching today, Um, God is never, never interested in slapping you upside the head and condemning you. He always wants to bring us to higher places in him, greater levels of knowledge and greater levels of humility so that he can position us for greater realms of blessing and grace and favor. That's his heart. That's his heart. So when God, see, the Bible also tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that, and I don't know if any of you felt disciplined at all with a teaching that was not really my intent to make you feel condemned or disciplined. But sometimes when we read the word, it does the, the disciplining, doesn't it? It pricks our heart sometimes, doesn't it? Just reading the word or hearing it proclaimed, it pricks our heart sometimes, as it should. And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God 
disciplines those he loves as dearly loved children. You are his dearly loved children. You're his son. You're his daughter. He desperately loves you to the point where he went to the cross and died a criminal's death for you. So now that you're in the faith, now that you're walking with him, it's not his desire to smack you upside the head with condemnation. If you feel any prick of conviction today, that's the Holy Spirit saying, I'm disciplining the one that I love. And I love you. He's wanting to position us for greater realms of blessing and favor and grace and, yes, indeed, honor. He wants to honor you. Why does God want to honor you? First of all, because he loves you and you're his child. But secondly, he wants to honor those that honor him so that they can continue to bring more grace and favor to those that they come into contact with and honor the Lord to more and more people and have a greater realm of influence. That's why God wants to honor people. He wants to be able to trust people with greater realms of influence. That's part of why he wants to honor you. But he's trying to teach us to humble ourselves first so we can be in the position to be honored of God. Does this help anybody this morning? Stand and pray with me, please. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.